years, your brain might turn to putty. But there's still a chance to learn. We'll be your study buddies. We're going to talk about some stuff and make research cool. All right. Well, hi. My name is Paula Sanchez Abreu. Hi, I'm Taylor Collins. And this is Study Buddies, a new podcast where we talk to you about our favorite developments in science and psychology. And sometimes more. Welcome to our very first episode. We are so excited to be in your ears today. Woohoo! Um, how are you doing, Taylor? Oh, I am doing good. I think moment to moment um, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I'm shifting. Uh, so if you ask me at like 9 a.m., you'll get an entirely different human <laughs> response, um, like set of thoughts and ideas and beliefs about the world as you will at like 930, literally. So that's yeah. that's where we are. That sounds about right. We're good right now. Um, You said that you had a mojito story to tell me (gasps) oh yeah oh yeah uh so okay oh no so this like this is a good story this is a good story so today this is how my week progressed um i i i've just like i've really wanted alcohol naturally Uh and i'm tired of just like beer and wine so i wanted to make something fancy and i have like, no bartending skills. So I was like, I want, like, a mojito, right? It seems simple. There's, like, mint and lime and rum, like, and then club soda. You right. Can't, can't you screw can't it really up. You can't really mess that up. Nope. Sugar, also. I forgot that. So, so This is already off to a bad start. It's fine, okay? <laughs> Things are great. So I really wanted a mojito, and I was like, I could go out and buy mint, but it's going to be like $2.250, and then it's going to go bad, and I'm going to have to buy it again every time I want to make the mojito. So what I really want is a mint plant. So not only am I going to work on my bartending, I'm going to work on my green thumb. I don't know the word for gardening, but yeah. like, yes. Growing I'll leaps and that. bounds during quarantine. Leaps and bounds. Right. So I went on like a massive hunt to find a mint plant. And then I left Home Depot with $80 worth of gardening supplies. Oh, my um, God. I did buy a garden. I have three mint plants and a lot of other things. Hold and they on. may all die. <laughs> three mint plants is way more than you would ever need to make a mojito. It, incorrect. Incorrect. Because I will tell you, these mint plants are quite small. And I don't know how many leaves because I want a lot of mojitos. How many leaves can I pull from the plant without killing it? I don't know these answers yet. So I was like, I need to buy spares for all the ones I kill. Oh, this is so good. This story is so good. So, <laughs> well, so I buy all these things. Um and I, I, I get home, I have all my ingredients for my mojito, I get started, and um, my very best friend, like, she absolutely loves bartending, so she sent me this whole recipe, and it was great. Um, she based this recipe off having a 10-ounce glass, which is, like, fancy and made for mojitos. Right. I am not, I'm ghetto, so I just had, like, a jar, <laughs> and it was not 10 ounces. So I, I, like, measured everything out just like she said, but it only filled, like, one-third of the jar, and it looked really sad. So I was like, no, no, no. We'll just make this, like, I don't know, like, double the size and add more ice. So then I just started, like, I doubled the – well, I I, I more than doubled the rum because I was like, if I want it to be good, there needs to be more alcohol, right? So I just – like I think I tripled the rum so there was like three shots of rum in this thing and then I was just adding so much lime Uh and 
Now, at this point, you're supposed to use sugar, right? Yeah. So what you first do is you you muddle the mint huh. and you put in, I think, a, a tablespoon, a teaspoon of sugar. I forget. Some th- amount. Of, you put sugar in <laughs> and and then you put like fresh lime juice. Mm-hmm. But I had already now added the rum and the ice and the club soda and then wanted to put all more things in. So I couldn't just put sugar back into it because it wouldn't have disintegrated. So my thought process was like, oh... Since it's already like cold and liquidy, I'll just use honey instead of sugar. Oh no! Because because honey is a liquid, right? <laughs> so it'll just mix right in there. And so now I have like the honey stuck to the straw, mm-hmm. and it's like all stuck to the yeah the mint right. The mint leaves are all stuck to the straw, and it was so. And so I also thought, you know what this needs is raspberries. What and happened this- in your brain? <laughs> To fix the situation. The only way to make my mojito better is to make more of it. So I just started adding more things. (laughs) So so then the raspberries, like, I didn't really muddle them all the way. I was like, oh, I'll just, like, leave them chunky because I love raspberries. And so then they got, like, chunks up in the straw with, like, leaves that – it was so bad, Paula. And the honey was stuck together. And I did all of this work, and I kept trying to, like – toned down the massive amount of rum I put into no. it and it was still str- I but I drank the whole thing because it was Good. my first mojito and um, were you really drunk I, felt I owed it that much I was I felt some stuff like I was you feeling some I was stuff. <laughs> I by the end of it I didn't realize it was bad anymore so well I okay that's worked. what I was gonna say I feel like if you're <laughs> a novice bartender and you're doing it in your own home you should have like Yes, you're making the drink, but you should also have a glass of the alcohol right next to you that you just drink by itself. So that way, if things go poorly, you it's okay. Like you won't even try to fix it because you're like, I'm already I'm already been drinking the bad thing by itself. So this is going to be a little bit better. Right. That's fair. Yeah. 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 Well, now you have a plan for next time. Because you have these three mint plants. Now you have to make more mojitos. Well, that was worth the wait. Um, the story was really great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. My margarita was not. <laughs> Your mojito. Oh, boy. Oh, see? <laughs> We're going progressively more down, just away from the base target. I don't even know. Oh, Maybe man. that's why the tequila didn't seem to mix in. I don't. Oh, God. Oh, oof. Wow. Well, that sounds like a. If I drank that, I would be destroyed for like two days <laughs> come over i'll make you one great <laughs> so should we talk a little bit about this study we brought in today so just kind of like a brief segue i'm a licensed master of social work and i do therapy with children and families and paula is an actor and artist in new york city so both of us have a theater background in the sense that we attended this niche arts high school in New Haven, and it's called Educational Center for the Arts. Absolutely loved going there um, as teenagers, and it has a really strong alumni network. Yeah, it was definitely um, the budding of our friendship, I will oh, say. Good times. So our experience in theater kind of led us um, 
to this study in an interesting way, or rather it shed light on this study um, that Taylor found and sent my way. So what we'll do is we'll tell you a little bit about the study, and then we are going to play for you our raw, unedited reactions to the study. Yeah, awesome. So, Paula, what is the name of this study? Yeah, so the name of the study is called Improv Experience Promotes Divergent Thinking, Uncertainty Tolerance, and Affective Well-Being. Um, so there's a lot of words, and we'll talk a little bit about them a little later, but the study was conducted in partnership with Stony Brook University and University of Michigan, and it was published in 2020, actually, so very recently. Awesome. And do you want to tell us a little bit more about improv in general, Paula? Yeah. So, um, and we did we did a little bit of improv, Taylor, if you'll remember, at Educational Center of the Arts. Do you remember? I do. I, I loved it. It made me very um, nervous, but I think probably some of the times where I've laughed like the most hysterically in my life has been in those improv moments. Yes. So um, some of you may know this, but simply put, improv is unplanned, so improvised collaborative performance. Um, So it just means that you're building the scene with somebody else. So you're not planning the scene ahead of time. You're building it with somebody else in the moment. It's taught often to beginners with the phrase, yes, and. What's yes, and, Taylor? Do you remember? Um, so yes, and is like when you accept what the other person's saying and then you like build on it. So you never say like, no. Yes. Well, yeah, you don't say no. Yes, you are correct in what you said. Yes. Um, yes, and is absolutely when you accept and build. And it's been improv in general has been used in recent years for addressing trauma, depression, anxiety, and it's been used in many other kind of non-theatrical settings to help people grow in their profession personally. So like you'll have corporate offices using improv as training tools. Um, Some therapists do what it's like improv therapy um, to address trauma. So it is used in a variety of different ways also outside of the theater. Yeah. What does this study specifically focus on? Yeah. So there's been some smaller studies and anecdotal evidence about improv's benefits, but overall there hasn't been a lot of comprehensive experimental research um, for improv's benefits. So that's what the study was hoping to do. It was trying to expand that research and specifically it was trying to include uncertainty tolerance as an additional dependent variable. Um, so if, if you remember from science class, what a dependent variable is, it's the thing that you're trying to measure in a study. So in this case, the thing that they were trying to measure in this study was uncertainty tolerance. There had been previous studies done about um, improv's effect on divergent thinking and on affect, but uncertainty tolerance was the one variable that they were missing. And so they wanted to include that in this study. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting thing, especially at this time where COVID is kind of taking over things. We really don't know exactly how the world's going to work, and I think we've all maybe been a little bit more anxious because of all that uncertainty, so we can see how being able to be more tolerant in a situation that is uncertain could lead you to be able to maybe feel more um, calm or relaxed in a certain in a situation that might be like otherwise threatening or scary. Yeah. So it was a it's a very uh, poignant study, if you will. So how did they do this? So they had two different experiments. Um, both had similar results, but I want to focus on the second experiment, which I feel like has um, just a better 
structure and it was kind of a correction to the first experiment anyways. So we'll focus on the second experiment that they did. They had 131 participants um, from the university, that Midwestern University as participants and they divided them up into groups. And they had each group do like an improvisation and then a controlled um, exercise. And the control exercise was going to be scripted material. Right. So either they were in this group of the improv group where they had improv exercises or this control group where things were more scripted. So they were still getting that social interaction. Exactly. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't uncertain. So it wasn't improv. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. we can I'll just give you like a couple of different ideas about what the improv group was doing as opposed to the control group. So the improv group, like, let's see here. So in one exercise, the improv group was co-creating a character. So they were taking turns um, describing this character, but they were building the character character together. Right. So you know John, right? Yeah, I know John. John is super tall and has the really dark, curly hair. Yeah, and that that creepy mustache. I really, I really hate that he has that mustache. And he honestly asked my opinion about shaving it, and then decided not to shave it anyway after I told him to shave it. Yeah, John does seem to be like very dismissive of people's opinions sometimes. And he also has those shoes. You remember those squeaky shoes that he has? Oh, you can hear him coming down the hallway from like three rooms away. It's it's the most most like specific shoe squeak I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. So that's exactly what the improv group was doing. They were co-creating a character just like Taylor and I co-created John with the squeaky shoes and the mustache. Um, and then the mustache. control group, <laughs> the control group, they were given a written description of some famous film actor that they were to read back and forth to each other. Um, another example is one of the improv group's was asked to co-create a physical reality. So without speaking, one person would demonstrate like a physical activity and then the other person um, would try to figure out what it was and then join them in doing that same activity. And then the control group would do, um, instead of choosing like a place, they were just given a list of gestures to perform. So that is the... That is like the general gist of what those two different groups were doing. Does that make sense, Taylor? Yeah. I also think there's one, there's like another example that I really like, and it's kind of a a game that we had played in our art school. Uh, it reminds me of a game anyway. But which they had it? this uh, unstructured counting. Oh um, God! Which yeah. It, if you've ever done it, you have like a group of people and basically you try to get to a certain number, say like 21, but you, no one says who starts and no one says when they're going to say a number or how many numbers they're going to say. And you try to just get to it. So you're all just kind of like listening planning to do it, but there's waiting. listening and feeling yeah. each other and just, yeah. And you're just, so you're just kind of feeling the vibe and trying to say out numbers to get there. And if anyone says the number at the same time, you have to go back and start at the beginning. So, like, that was a an improv task that they did while the, sh- the the control group did, like, structured counting where we would alternate, like, one, two, three, four. So that's what they did in the experiment groups. And then after that, 
they use um, three different evaluation surveys to gather data on the improv's effects on divergent thinking, uncertainty tolerance, and overall affect, which affect is like your mood and well-being. And they conducted these evaluations before doing the experiment and then after so they could see the potential changes. Pre-post-test design. Pre-post-test design. Hey, listen to that science come out. Oh. <laughs> so um, the three tests that they used We'll start off with uh, the profile of mood states, and that was testing affect, and they simplified the evaluation to one simple question. How do you feel right now? And then they had the participant answer on a scale from zero, which was very negative, to 100, which was very positive. Then they used the alternative uses task to test Ooh. for divergent thinking, fancy name. And this asked each um, participant to come up with as many different uses as they could for different objects such as a remote control, a paperclip, other common objects. Uh, the last evaluation that they did was the uncertainty tolerance scale. Obviously, that's testing uncertainty tolerance. And with this, we know that lower scores on this um, tolerance scale indicate that people tend to worry more and view uncertain situations to be more threatening. And higher scores on the uncertainty tolerance scale predict higher physical well-being, finding positive meaning in challenges, participating in new learning contexts, and enduring longer in an uncertain situation. Wow. So those are the okay. so yeah, those are the evaluations they did before and after the experiment. Awesome. And what did the experiment actually find? Yeah, well, um, it's pretty clear in the title of the experiment, just as the study states, they found that improv in both experiments did increase the participants' affect, uncertainty, tolerance, and divergent thinking. So in other words, improv is good for your soul. So that, so this study is very interesting, mainly because in my particular experience with improv, I don't remember um, how it changed me in high school, but I took an improv class again shortly after closing um, a show in New York City that I was doing at Lincoln Center. And it was a transitional period where I was coming out of a full-time acting jo job that was paying all of my bills um, to just going back to a regular day job at a gym and I was like I need to do something to keep performing I'm gonna go take an improv class at Upright Citizens Brigade UCB in Hell's Kitchen and I remember that it's it's not like I thought that oh I'm gonna make friends and I'm gonna get to be funny um and I didn't really have any experience with comedy until then like in the professional world and not just in high school and it was such an interesting experience because now thinking back on it, it did help me transition from something that I was doing every single day. I knew I was going to Lincoln Center six days a week. I knew I was going to do this show the same way, the same like every single night, obviously with new energy because I'm an actress. But um, <laughs> like it did help me come out of that and go into a space that's generally like post-show depression that's what we call it, um, is a very real thing. And mitigating that with mm. more performance is helpful. Um, but mitigating it with a performance that comes at the level of uncertainty probably definitely helped me get through that period. And I, I continue to do um, I continue to do that. And now it has me doing other things. Um, improv does as well. But 
as far as like. Right. And that's yeah. the interesting thing, I think, about this study is it's, you know, taking these are people who are not the people who ran the study are not like improv instructors. Right. They're not um, performers inherently. The, Right. And the people who are who were the subjects don't have didn't have any like specific background in like improv or theater. Um, So these were just like, you know, short segments of like how 20 minutes affected like these people directly afterwards. Um, So I, I do think it would be so interesting to see how like doing these exercises across time would affect like uncertainty in a relationship. So yeah. Um, I had actually sent some of the improv exercises to my team because we're transitioning to telehealth now. Oh, cool. Um, and it's kind of uh, like it's it's much more diffi- difficult, I think, to do therapy, especially with children um, yeah. and, and families through video or phone. Mm-hmm. So I thought it might be interesting to try with some of these because, again, like I'm thinking about I think about it almost like a like a tennis match when there's an argument, like there's like back and forth and you're trying to like kind of watch this um, this tennis ball being like ping ponged back between between two people, and um, there's so in an in an, a heated argument, which a lot of our families or a lot of us get into very frequently. Yeah. Um, there's so many moments of uncertainty and so many moments of like kind of quick response. Right. Um, and I think there is a sense of improv in our our you know our day our day to day actions because we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I wonder if if practicing that um that back and forth in a way that's not threatening yeah. can help people to to practice to practice having those interactions um in a way that feels maybe more like safe and less heightened constructive and collaborative too right and and a sense of um like i like i had mentioned before being attuned to that other person in that moment because if you mm. if you practice paying attention to nonverbals and you practice um taking a second before and to notice where that other person is at before you jump in, right. um, that's so helpful. And uh, that other point of improv is uh, this is one of the, the – I'm more of a novice. Paul is the expert in all theater things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one takeaway I have from high school is the yes and, you know. Yes and. Yes and. Yeah. Right. Um, when Basically when yes and – what yes and means to me is when someone states like a piece of their – reality you don't counter it you accept it and you build um and I feel like as far as like being able to transition that into relationships is actually really important to not undermine someone's experience to not undermine someone's thought um, whether that be in an argument or a conversation to just say okay yeah not for your knee-jerk reaction to be no but I think right because if you did that in an improv scene that's that then you you basically kill the improv um because it becomes about what you wanted to build and not what you were co co-building together which is essentially when you are problem solving something which often that's what i mean a lot of fights are born out of emotion but you mm-hmm. have that emotion because you want so badly for the thing to work and if we think about those conversations as not just an expression of our anger and our resentment, but rather as a way to build something functional with the other person. Um, that's exactly right. what creating an improv scene is. Um, that is a really beautiful way. I I did not think about that um, in in terms of this study in terms of relationship, um, but that that is so so true because the the amount of in the moment 
presence that mm-hmm. you have to have in an improv can directly translate to the amount of in the moment attention you should have when you're having a conversation with somebody else. Yeah. And obviously, you know, this is a very like there's not a lot of um, overlap into how um, theater training and improv training specifically um, affects people. There's it's a, it's kind of a new area and there's not mm. a lot of at least experimental research into it. Maybe some anecdotal research. Sure. Um, there is some work with um, using theater with with um, trauma therapy, people with autism. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there, there is some work into it, but it's, it's pretty much like a new area. And so maybe it, maybe it's a little bit of a jump to think that uh, it goes there, but, um, yeah, yeah, I guess that's, that's where my brain goes is that it, it can't, it can't be harmful to be, to be practicing, like fine tuning our ability to have interactions with other people, because I think those will always directly translate to our relationships yeah I mean okay well you know what we can take we can take a little example if you've ever seen the office um when Michael tries to go do improv he always pulls out a gun even though (laughs) if you pull out a gun in improv the scene dies because somebody is going to die and then you don't have a scene partner um and Michael's like daily interactions are very similar to that like he always whips out something and then the other person really can't do anything about it i am loving this is such an accurate like yes like <laughs> it's so you're true. going he's never like right i mean obviously it's a tv show but like his character is so like real and you can understand yeah. how there's those people who just like bowl through moments not not being <laughs> understanding like, that there's other people involved totally unaware of social cues Something that I wanted to talk about, too, because I think that we can all use um, a little bit of training and uncertainty tolerance during this incredibly uncertain time um, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes. But um, so Ashley Ashley C. Ford, she's a, a writer and she tweeted the other day. Um, You are watching people go through withdrawal from the emotional addiction to the myth of certainty, which Mm. Mm -hmm. is so profound for um, for this and also relates back to this study. Um, But it's really interesting to think about um, the myth one. The myth of certainty is a whole thing in itself. But having an emotional addiction to certainty is... um, is a really interesting idea to think about. It's a really interesting word because I think certainty is so important um, when it comes to, because I think of certainty as security. So maybe I'm thinking of this word differently, but um, I think having like knowing when you wake up, you're safe in the morning um, knowing that, you know, your partner isn't going to leave you or your your parents are there for you. Those those aspects of certainty and security are so like foundational to our wellness and our well-being. Yeah. Um, and when we have that like kind of ripped out from under us, we're like, I don't know what to do. And I do. I love how she basically kind of talks about this myth, like this illusion that we've built, that those things are always guaranteed. And there's definitely a sense of um entitlement and uh, like it's kind of good that we've had this but it's also difficult we've 
some of us have grown up in an era where we haven't had to worry about, um, you know, our our basic livelihoods being threatened at all times. Yeah, like f- like um, food, shelter, um, that safety. Those are like the basic foundations of what right. the pyramid for right. Yeah. <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy, Thank you. hierarchy of needs. I was like, there's a pyramid somewhere. <laughs> Somebody made yeah, a pyramid the, the about phys- it. The, f- <laughs> the physiological <laughs> needs are, are on the bottom of it. And it's exactly that. The food, the safety, the shelter. Um, right. And, you know, I think we live in a time and in an era um, and as in, in a certain area of the, of the world um, where we've just been very lucky right now, or at least growing up to not deal with that, where if we lived in a different area of the world or in a different era or maybe as just a different person um yeah we we wouldn't have that 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 myth and that illusion that she was talking about yeah i definitely think that like our peers and the majority of the people that we interact with on a daily basis have had those things um if not easily met simply met and that in itself is um is such a privilege that is easily overlooked so I think the the moral of the story is everyone should try some theater improv when uh, things get back on their feet because one it's terrifying it's so scary it's so scary but um all of <laughs> I'm not gonna take away from all that. of those schools are gonna need your money from those classes one <laughs> to to stay open <laughs> um and two I would pay for one for sure yeah you might as well try it out see um see if it it's helps. really rewarding I. And maybe it's because I'm a little bit of a masochist. I don't, it's, I don't. I don't know if it's actually masochism because I like, I like the idea of pushing myself to grow. And there's something about improv that's so terrifying. You that it is uncertain. Yeah. You have no idea what's gonna happen, and you may just look like an idiot, and your joke will just totally miss. And there's crickets chirping, and then you, the mo- the moment passes. Yeah. Um. So it's. It's you're, maybe you're, scary in that moment. You're practicing risk and embarrassment, which, um, I mean, if there's anything that, especially like as women, we can practice, it's that. Like it's taking a risk yeah. and maybe seeing it fail or seeing it succeed and ha- and knowing that you're going to come out the same way. What a safe environment to do that in. <laughs> I want to fall flat on my face so many more times in order to get, because I'm still not comfortable with that. I'm 26 and... I like to try different things, and I remember I had joined, I had for a little bit worked with an alumni choir of the choir I was in in high school, and um, we had worked with this um, writer who wrote this, this song, and he was kind of debuting it, and the lyrics mm-hmm. for it were really important, and I had gotten a solo, and the one thing he said was like, you know, just don't forget the lyrics. Um, I had a page in front of me with the lyrics. I, I only had like two lines. Like it wasn't hard. And I practiced them so many times in my head. But when I, it was my turn yep. to sing, I messed the words up for the whole thing. And I, because I was confident in the words, so I didn't look at the paper. But then I freaked out like the moment before oh, and then no. I couldn't find them on the paper. So I just was like, <laughs> this was like two years ago, three years ago, maybe. Yeah. And I, it pains me like to this to day still I think still about think it about wow I I went to like the conductor afterwards and I was like I really would like to work on being just more musically accountable oh um, my gosh, Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> she's, 
She's just trying to be the best version of herself, you guys. I just like, I just like, I, I let myself, and I was just, and it's, it kills me to this day. Like I think about it, and I, it also was like two seconds of time, and it really doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I think I need to feel that feeling so much more. It's the worst, but I need to feel it so much more so I get comfortable and. I think the more you get comfortable with falling on your face, the more you're able to push yourself and grow. Sounds like a plan to me, Taylor. She's taking some improv classes after quarantine is over. Oh, my God. Pal is going to sign me up for, like, so many things. (laughs) Um, In, like... In like weird areas of New York that I don't understand what the neighborhoods are. I'm gonna like what is Tribeca. I'm gonna make her get lost and also do improv. It's gonna be great. Oh, I get lost so much. I actually get very scared of being lost. <laughs> she's, also. She's turning her into a risk taker. Um, all right, shall we move on to is that an ism? This is the part of the show where one of us asks the question, is that an ism? And now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with isms. We'll give you some examples. Sexism. Racism. Ableism. Liberalism. Favoritism. Catabaptism. Catabaptism? Like the belief in the wrongness of infant baptism? Yep. Um, not that we're going to talk about that one today. I have something very specific in mind. Um, but now you all know what catabaptism is in case you didn't before. Taylor apparently knew. Yeah. Um, yeah. Day-to-day knowledge. <laughs> Come on, guys. So. We have been having this experience for the past year at my parents' house where there is an animal living on our backyard and we didn't know what it was. And I've been doing some research. We've seen it. It comes onto the porch. It's fantastic. It comes onto the porch. What does it look like? Um, it's it, it's like a like vermin-y rodent, but it's large. Like it's like the size of a small <laughs> dog. So we we're just like, what is this thing? Um, it turns out that it was a groundhog, but we didn't know. I, I at least I didn't know until Wednesday when this this occurred so I was at my desk and my my desk in this house overlooks the entire backyard and uh and there's like a porch in my backyard so the desk overlooks the porch and then the backyard and I see this animal like crawling onto the porch I got so excited because right now another thing that's happening to me during quarantine is that any interaction with an with something that is not a human like birds squirrels it's, dogs it's precious it, i just it fills me with the giddiness of a little girl with a new crush like i get so oh. excited and so i got so freaking pumped i was like oh my god it's here it's here it's here and i stopped my work and i like i stood up and i just peeked out like over the window and i i, I just like watched this creature existing <laughs> And it crawled over to the, it crawled over to the edge of the porch and like looked like it was gonna like hop off, which it doesn't have the capabilities to hop. So I was like a little concerned. And then it turned around and it made its way back and like kind of out of my like window sight. So I ran out of the room and down the hall to our glass door, and it was in front of the glass door. And I like gave it space because I didn't want to scare it away. And it was just like, like moving, like scurry moving. I wish you guys could see what she's doing with her body because she's she's physically crouched in her closet doing this with her like, hands. It was like, it's yeah, great. it was like, and it was weird because its butt like moves at the same time as its front legs. So it, oh, it's just so strange. So it's kind of like galloping a little bit, but it's so small that it looks like it's like an inchworm galloping. Very weird. Anyways, it was doing that in front of this enormous glass door. 
And then it like stood up on its hind legs and looked into the house directly. And at that moment, I was bent over sideways. Like picture this. Picture somebody squatting, but like their head turning upside down. So it's like sideways towards the window. Like that's what I was doing. sounds like it's from like a horror movie. (laughs) It was a normal body (laughs) position. I realized that it might have sounded like I was, I'm a contortionist. I'm not. Um, I basically was just like. (laughs) bent over and then like my head was tilted sideways and I was kind of looking at this creature look into the house I didn't know if it saw me or not and then this happened the groundhog lifted its hands and double high-fived the window (laughs) so hard that the window made a thud and then like kept staring and it truly looked like it was looking right at me. So it was, it was very, it was like, it was, it was just, I felt like it was a moment of connection. I just mentally high-fived a groundhog that actually high-fived me. And then it just like kind of slowly walked away and went and disappeared into the yard. It was. He got what he came for. It was insane. Um, I have been thinking about it nonstop since it happened uh and giggling to myself that i that a groundhog high-fived me this weekend and then i i asked myself the question because i kept i've been i've been continuing to say i've been double high-fived by a groundhog yeah but i don't know is that anthropomorphism to think that what okay that one i don't know you have to explain this one to me paula Anthropomorphism is like the <laughs> putting on human qualities to non-human things. Yeah. So wait, let me look up the actual definition of it. I have it here. I wrote it down. Um, it's the oh, the attribution of human qualities to non-human things. So it's exactly what I said. But what's a thing? Because is a groundhog a thing? It is. It is definitely non-human. Yeah. But it's like subhuman. <gasps> How dare you? Below us, oh. Taylor. <laughs> no. Maybe like, what's it, what's the what's the prefix for like part or like ascending to? Um, it is a different species. <laughs> that doesn't answer your question, I'm, but that is what a groundhog I'm, is. I'm just really trying to not offend all of our groundhog listeners. Well, I'm not trying, I'm trying not to offend all of our groundhog listeners. <laughs> I just want to be, be very careful like, well, with the way I'm saying things. It's very considerate um, and kind of you. And also a little bit anthropomorphic to think that groundhogs listen to podcasts, Taylor Collins. <laughs> okay. I think that um, if that's anthropomorphic, if it's like a attributing non-human qualities to non-human things, I think that's how I go through most of my days. Um, and I think that that's fair like uh when the internet doesn't work i think that it's mad at me (laughs) (laughs) um and i i just think that that's fine well here's my thing it has brought me great um joy and lots of giggles to think that non-human things are existing in a human way but is it disrespectful to not allow the non-human thing in and like this is like a living thing I mean, I don't know if you can disrespect the internet, but you can certainly disrespect an animal. Is it disrespectful to consider 
that animal having the same type of existence as me. Oh my God, the political correctness of like the animal psyche. I'm like (laughs) getting lost in trying to even conceptualize this. I don't know, Taylor, do you have an answer? Is it anthropomorphism? Yeah, you definitely did that. Like you totally did that. Okay. Yeah, it's anthropomorphism. I hope I said that right. That was... mm. You did. Um, I check. I check myself. I check my human privilege, and um, I. <laughs> while I will continue to say that the groundhog double high fived me through my glass window, I will recognize that it is incorrect politically to say that. Um, this and I will also recognize that most people my limit. do not give a shit. <laughs> this is too liberal for me. This is the first thing that's ever happened to me where I've been like, this is too fucking liberal. I can't be here. Excuse my swearing again, but this is. You are welcome, Taylor Collins. <laughs> Paula has found my limit. <laughs> uh, all right, listeners, check your human privilege. We just can't. We just can't. We got to be respectful. You know, this is Mother Mother Earth. Although, on a side note of small human, small humans, um, small subhumans in our backyard. Subhumans. Um, <laughs> there is, like, my backyard is a, like, squirrel heaven. And so remember how I told you on Tuesday, which is three days ago, I recently had that whole thing where I bought $80 worth of a garden. I yes. forgot that I have squirrel heaven and I'm trying oh. to reconcile <laughs> if it's even possible to maintain my garden because I they may just eat the entirety of my mojito supplies and that just might be the end of that. Well, but. it's a good thing you bought three. Right. See, I told you. <laughs> well, I think that I think that brings us to the end of our um, episode. Should we should we hum a song out what song do you want to hum? Um, the only one I can think of is Happy Birthday, and it, that doesn't seem appropriate. No, we're going to do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Everybody should be practicing their hand washing to Happy Birthday anyways, so we might as well give them a little reminder of what the song is. Okay. Ready? To hand washing. To Lysol winner at the store. Staying six feet away from others. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus. And many more. Study Buddies was created by Paula Sanchez Abreu and Taylor Collins. Our graphic design was done by Monica Ray Summers Gonzalez. And our intro song was composed by singer songwriter Caught In Between. You can follow Study Buddies on Instagram at studybuddies.com and email the show at studybuddiespodcast at gmail.com.